Episode number 104, Lamour Shaponi, Striding Toward Storytelling Mastery. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so pleased that you have found the time to come here to be with us. Because today we are going to talk about some of the core, the essential issues of what it means to find mastery of storytelling. And I am I am so thrilled to have with me on the show one of those storytellers. Her reputation had spread so far that I have heard of her before I began my podcasting project. And during the time when I was recording different storytellers, I, I was once recording a storyteller here in the States, and a woman called from Israel, and it wasn't Lamor. This woman, she was asking questions about storytelling, and she was uh, participating in the conversation. I, I was telling my friend about how cool it was to have this Israeli call into the show, and my friend was like, that wasn't L- Lamor Shaponi. And I was like, oh, I, no, no, I don't think it was. And my friend said, well, if it was, if she calls your show, you should drop your guest and just interview Lamour. <laughs> I was like, really? And that's, that's when I decided, this is almost a year and a half ago, that I had to have her on the show. And I'm really excited and really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you. Um, so Lamour Shaponi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> so Lamour, would you be willing to share a story with us? Uh, yes, I'll try. Although English is not my native language, which sometimes gets me stuck. So this story is about a French businessman. And on the day the story starts, he was sitting on his expensive executive's chair, rotating it slowly and glancing through the windows looking at the big city, overlooking Paris. And suddenly this thought crept into his mind, creeped into his mind, and he thought to himself, this beautiful city that people come from all over the world to visit, this beautiful country I live in, that people arrive here to try the fabulous wines and admire the beautiful women, and taste such great foods, I've never had the time and opportunity to visit. I was always too busy. So maybe I should take a vacation. And that's what he did. He left his responsibilities with people he trusted, walked to the elevator, down to the parking lot, got into his tremendously expensive car, and drove out of the parking space, and started uh, driving through Paris. And he was looking at the people. 
standing on the street, speaking to each other, taking their times at cafe, and just strolling. And it was a sight that he never noticed before. He was always too busy. And as time passed, he drove out of the city and along the roads of France, and he took his time. Every place he saw this beautiful view, he stopped, and he took his time to observe the view. And he met people, and he sat down to speak with them, and try foods and wines and all the pleasures of France. And after about six months of riding through uh, France, he was riding one day on a country road for many hours, and he started uh, feeling tired. So he pulled over and got out of the car to stretch, and suddenly he heard the singing of a bird. And the second thing he noticed in a split second is that the voice, this beautiful voice of the bird, hit his heart, and something there cracked and moved and warmed up. And he had this feeling in his chest that he hasn't felt for so many years. And he was so surprised that such a small creature like a bird could do something like that to him. And he wanted to see what kind of bird it was. So he looked among the treetops and he couldn't see the bird. He just heard its voice and he followed the voice. And it got slightly louder and louder, but he couldn't see the bird until he reached a clearing. And there was a small house standing there. He knocked at the door. Nobody answered. So he walked into the garden, and there he saw a large tree. And from one of its branches, a cage was hanging. And in that cage sat the singing bird. And he was so excited. He stood there, looking at it, hearing its voice with his heart. He was tremendously moved. But after a few minutes, his eyes started to wander. And he could see that on the other side of the tree, there was a bench, and on it sat an old couple, a man and a woman. So he crossed the garden, and he approached them, and he said, Hello, good people. I passed here uh, by mistake. I, I didn't know I would get to this place. And I heard your bird. It sings so fabulously. I would like to buy it if it is possible. The old man looked at him and said, I am sorry, but it is not for sale. And the businessman answered, You don't know who I am. Anything you could dream about, I could bring for you over here. And the old man looked at the old woman, his wife, and smiled and looked at the businessman again and said, Everything we can dream about, we already have. I am very sorry, it is not for sale. So he said goodbye, greeted them nicely, walked back to his car and thought to himself, just a minute, this is the countryside. If I'll find a pet shop, I can buy one of those birds for myself. And in the next village, he found a pet shop, walked in, and the first thing he could see in front of his eyes was the same cage with the same bird sitting in it. And at the bottom there was a small plaque saying, 10 francs. And he thought to himself, ten francs? 
I was giving, was willing to give them half of my fortune. And he walked up to the salesman and he said, 10 francs, isn't that a little bit too cheap? And the salesman said, yes, but this one does not sing. And he said, but I, I want one that does. And he said, we don't have one. So being a businessman, he had this kind of idea in his head. He bought the bird, waited for night to fall over the village, drove back to that small house in the clearing, took the bird and switched the cages, and took the singing bird back with him to Paris. And it was given a place of honor next to his executive chair. And every morning when he walked into the office, it sang for him. Beautiful tunes. Fabulous voice. And his heart, every day, it changed a little bit. A little bit more. A little bit different. Until about six months later, he was a changed man. And he looked at the bird and he thought to himself, I did something terrible. I need to go back and return the bird. So he took the cage with him, down the elevator to the parking lot. He drove all the way back to that small, tiny village, left the bird with the cage in the car and walked back into the garden. And there, hanging from the tree, was the same cage he left there that same night with the silent bird sitting in it. And he looked at it for a minute and saw that on the other side was sitting the old man on the bench. And he walked up to him and he said, excuse me, monsieur. And he said, oh, you are the businessman, eh? How are you? How is your business going? And the businessman said, you want to tell me that you remember me? I've been here maybe half a year ago. I spoke to you two and a half sentences. I never told you what I do. How on earth could you remember me? And the old man said, well, figuring out what you do was not that difficult. But it is not for nothing that I remember you. You remember the day you were here, you wanted to buy the bird. The same night, my wife died. Since then, the bird sings no more. That's a great story. Yeah, I like it. Where does it come from? They say I wrote it. <laughs> I didn't write it, I created it. I don't write the stories I create. I like that. I don't write the stories I create. Um, what does it mean to be a storyteller of many languages? Between languages? <laughs> well, how many languages do you speak? I speak two languages properly, I think. I hope I speak English properly. Hebrew I speak properly, uh, yes, by definition. Um... Well, there is a form of frustration sometimes in English that I don't get the right words or the way I want them to be. And usually in Hebrew, I speak much faster. So my entire um, performance is different. And in English, I need to speak much slower. Um, on the other hand, I learn a lot from moving between both languages because they are tremendously different. They have different lengths. English is 30% longer than Hebrew. 
So, if you take a Hebrew book and an English book, the translation it's always 30% thicker. <laughs> so, in that space, there's a lot of learning. And English is different. Uh, I mean, the, the syntax is also very different. So, there is some form of frustration, but also learning. Hi, this is Lynn Ford from Columbus, Ohio. I'm standing at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Israel is a very international country compared to the United States, um, and I, I think that a lot of my American listeners would be curious how that affects storytelling there in terms of the mix of cultures that come through your, through your country? Okay. Um, first of all, Israel and the United States are in a way uh, similar um, as lands of immigrants. Only Israel is much younger. So this um, melting pot that Americans went through is way deeper because of the, <laughs> the time it since it, it was constituted. But they're both uh, countries of immigrants. Um, in Israel, there are about 70 different ethnical groups. And the, the different um, categories could be about religion, could be about ethnical background, could be about, um, a, like, subcultures. Yes, because if you come, say, from North Africa... North African Jews, each country uh, they came from uh, has different uh, habits, like as if they're from the same ge geographical part of the world, but they're very different from each other. So, and, and in a way, people like to keep this differentiation, especially when it has to do with uh, their family habits, food, yes, uh, everyday Every, everyday, usual life uh, culture. On the other hand, um, it is a great melting pot. So you keep your own stories, and then there are united stories. And to say what is an Israeli story is a difficult definition. Like every time I travel abroad, people say, and now Limoshi Pony, she will tell us Jewish stories. <laughs> but uh, that's not necessarily what I would, be, uh, would prefer to tell. And figuring out what Israeli stories are is not a simple task. And I'm still at it, although I have my own uh, definition for what Israeli stories are. So, so we don't yet have storytelling-wise, uh, clear definition for what Israeli stories are. And that's part of, uh, of the culture, that it's so complex. Well, I want to ask you to, to take a moment and take a stab at it. To take a what? Try to define the undefinable. What is oh. Israeli storytelling? Okay, I think uh, this definition um, might, might be uh, true anywhere else in the world, too, because um, it's connected to the place. It's stories that I find about uh, things that happened here in this place and are strongly attached to the place, to the climate, to the views, 
to the habits, to the heat, <laughs> yes, uh, to the temper, and to the striving of the people on this land, most probably defined as Israeli stories. And they could be stories of the first immigrants of a modern Zionism, like happened at the end of the 19th century. For me, those are tremendously Israeli stories because it, that's what led eventually to the constitution of the state of Israel. Um, and, and all the stories about what they did here are, they could happen only here. They couldn't happen anywhere else in the world for these people. Also, um, stories that combine the complex identity of being an Israeli they're also tremendously Israeli to, to my taste. Yes, I, I want to remind listeners that Israelis, there are for many uh, religions. Yes, you could be a uh, Muslim Israeli, you can be a Christian Israeli, you can be a Jewish Israeli, you can be a Buddhist Israeli. <laughs> yes, so it's not necessarily uh, only about the Jewish inhabitants of this place. Israeli is a, is a complex uh, definition. So I think the ones that w which are connected to the place and which show the connection of the people and the way they live here and what they do here and their strivings here are Israeli stories. Let's, let's talk about this concept of mastery in storytelling. There's been a lot of discussions in the storytelling community in the U.S. about when someone has the right to use the word master in front of their name, you know, master storyteller in front of their name. And there have been discussions of those who use the who use the words um, but may not be deserving of the title. And so I guess I want to start this discussion by asking, when should a storyteller have the gumption to um, use the words master storyteller in when introducing themselves? Well, in a way, I think that a storyteller doesn't need... I don't think that a person who is a master needs to call himself a master. I think he's, he's entitled to mastery when people recognize that. Yes, when they say about a person that he's a master, maybe that's the opening possibility to think about the option. <laughs> and um, just adding it, deciding that this is the right time, Yes, maybe um, I'll give you an example of when I decided that I'm a good storyteller, <laughs> and and the way and the way it happened, yes, and the way it happened uh, truly, and that was a small moment, but it was important for me. I studied storytelling in Israel. You can study storytelling in a quite a stable fashion, and I was I was a good student at the beginning. It was tremendously difficult for me. If someone would tell me twenty years ago that one day I'll be a storyteller. I would uh, laugh in their face. So I studied storytelling and I was a good student and after two years of learning I came out and I performed this uh, unique program of medieval stories which never nobody has ever performed here before. And it was a fabulous evening, outstanding. People have never seen such a performance. But I was unsatisfied. I said, this is only scratching the beginning of what I feel storytelling might be. Luckily enough, about a year later, a group of uh, foreign storytellers arrived here. And they were all great. I, I know them in person now, <laughs> but then I, I didn't know them. 
And they went on stage and it was, it was a ball. I listened to them very closely. One of them uh, attracted my attention, especially because when she spoke, although all of them were great and they still are fabulous storytellers, when she spoke, it, it echoed within me in a way that I said to myself, this is what I mean. This is what I think storytelling, the way I see it, is. And so that put me on a search. It took me about six years, hundreds of performances and learning and digging and trying to understand and, and speaking with other storytellers all over the world. And until one day, they asked me to perform um, on a memorial day of a soldier. And his family was there and some of their friends. And it was a very intimate event. And that was about six and a half years after I start, finished studying storytelling and performed a lot. And people thought I was really great. But I didn't feel exactly that way. I just thought I was doing a good job. And that performance was so intimate that I could, I could touch their face and they could touch mine. And they were pulling out these um, albums of his photographs. He was, he was killed at a very young age. And everything was so tremendously close. And at the same time, I had no fear. I felt I was serving the situation. I could not tell when it was the right moment not to tell. I was listening to their stories, telling some of my stories. And I got into the car and drove back home. And suddenly I said to myself out loud, Limor, now you're a good storyteller. Okay, so that took eight and a half years. And it's not only about time, it's eight and a half years of search and performance and, and learning and digging and really running around to find more and more and more about it and thinking about what makes a storytelling event and, and a fine storytelling. And only then I, I remember just saying it out loud in the car, Limor, now you're a good storyteller. I never thought at that moment about the word mastery. I was just satisfied finally from reach, for reaching that place that I could call a fine storytelling event that actually serves the art, serves the people. Everybody in that situation was at that moment the art itself. So, but I never, uh, wrote the next morning fine storyteller Limon Shiponi. It's only when people started pointing out uh, what they think about me, yes, that I said, oh, all right, thank you, all right, thank you. I still don't use the word master. Yes, and I, I know many fine storytellers that I would, I would call masters who never call themselves that way. But if someone would call himself master, I think this name has to be given to him. Like in a spiritual voyage where eventually your master gives you, grants you your name. In finding our way to to mastery, is apprenticeship an important part of that journey? Finding another storyteller to apprentice with, to learn from. I think it is tremendously important whether you actually uh, find that person and walk with him or you walk with him in your mind because it's not always possible physically. But carrying this 
this teacher or this master in your mind and listening to his voice in your in your imagination or maybe there are a few people yes i think it is tremendously important i think that uh, uh having a predecessor yes like an, a storytelling ancestor is as important as having an ancestor in general yes yes certainly what do you think stands in the way of mastery for a lot of people trying to be storytellers what are the obstacles that people run into mm. well one of the obstacles i think is misunderstanding what it takes to become a fine storyteller and uh even determining what that means what is a good storyteller and since i am also uh uh reading yes these discussions and listening to them and being present at some of these uh i wouldn't even sometimes call them discussions there's sometimes uh fierce fierce fights there's this feeling that since there is no exact definition of what that means to be a very good storyteller this will forever stand this argument i have the feeling that people say what do you mean a very good storyteller who s- says who who are you to determine if this is good storytelling or not because once you grade something so where will you be on the other hand When you hear a very good storyteller, you know it's a very good storyteller. From the experience uh, point of view, it, it you don't lie to yourself, at least not in your heart. This argument <laughs> is standing in the way when on the other hand it is so simple to to make peace. Now, I don't think that we need to grade storytellers. I don't uh, the fear is in the wrong place. I don't think there needs to be fear. I think we need to define a methodology or a way a path that storytellers need to walk along and be and take part in in order to become storytellers and the best example that i know and that's what set me off really on on my my search was that when i studied storytelling i'm a musician i'm a professional musician I've studied studied music from the age of 5. I'm an orchestra conductor until today. And when you study music, you're placed at very young age on a very specific path. Whether you study classical music or modern music or jazz, there is a methodology. There's a way that you walk. Yes, and you start in the footsteps of giants. You play Beethoven without knowing when you just start off. and after when when you get to the age of 17 if you've been practicing and learning through all those years you're a fine musician you still have to become a more mature emotionally but you're already a fine musician and when i studied storytelling i used to think to myself these people are adults yes including myself although i was rather younger then and none of them is even getting close to the ability of a 17 years old musician so something here is wrong and i was looking at at it's, it has nothing to do with the te- specific teachers it was just not a stable path 
and you didn't know whether what you were doing right now is the right thing to do. And if you practice ever at home, people were astonished when I told them that I practice at home. I said, what do you mean you don't practice at home? Musicians practice every day. <laughs> and they thought I was, I was totally mad. So if you have a clear path to walk, you will eventually get somewhere and get somewhere good. But in a way, there's this great fear. So until that won't be arranged, in a way, I'm afraid this, uh, this will still be an obstacle. The other thing, which is uh, in the path of storytellers, is thinking that uh, everybody can do it. Many people come to me and say, oh, that's cool. Maybe I can come to a course and do it too. <laughs> Then they come to a course. And about a month later, someone always, but always, says suddenly into the air of the class, wow, I never knew this was such serious stuff. We just came here for fun. And storytelling is, is serious business. <laughs> it's, it's really a, a way of life. It's an agenda, like any other form of art. And because we don't have this uh, kind of order, or things, as Joe Radnick called them, uh, which are settled in other arts, So you don't have storytelling critiques, and you don't have storytelling academies, and you don't have a st proper storytelling agenda in many places. Yes. If you want to fill up a form for a grant over here, yes, they have a, a, like this open grant for artists. And if I write a, a grant, I usually get the paper back, and what's written on it is, Very interesting proposition, but we don't have a column for it. Because storytelling is, is um, transparent. It has no backing, no, no power standing behind it in the ways thing are run, things are run in the world today. Do you mean paper thin? Yes. It's non-existent, really. When, when I walk out of a performance, usually people say, you are such a great actress. And I want to shoot their face. <laughs> But starting to explain my point is always pointless. Because that, those are the tools they have to examine what I do. Yes. It's not, it's not their fault. It's our fault. Of not taking the serious responsibility of building the, the building blocks of our art, placing them out in the open and saying, this is exactly what this is about. Not being afraid to do that. On the other hand, it, it's so tremendously powerful, yes? So what are those building blocks? Well, part of it is methodology. Yes, l learning how to, to master what you need to master in order to be a storyteller. You need to master uh, voice work, gesture, you need to, to, to master um, uh, knowing so many stories, mythologies, yes, folk, folk uh, tales from all over the world, from your own tradition. You need to listen. Yes. When you study music, and I think, personally, that music and storytelling are, are the most closest. Yes, maybe speaking poetry stands together with them. Music and storytelling are very, very, very close. Much closer than, than storytelling and literature or theater or folklore. 
First of all, it's finding out what the, the skills which are needed. What are the opening conditions for someone to become a storyteller? Yes, and I think they're rather simple, but not all the people that I teach storytelling uh, would pass these tremendously simple <laughs> uh, guiding lines. Yes, I think that in order to become a storyteller, you, you need to like people, to be in love with the human race, and that you really need to want to do all the way, to do all the work along the way. And if a person stands in those two conditions... I could teach him to become a very good storyteller. I can't promise mastery. There are people who have no sense of story, and they come to learn storytelling. And there are so many others that I could call building blocks, finding out exactly what makes a performing storytelling event, really. So many storytellers have become uh, platform storytellers, as they call them in, uh, in the States. Yes, stage tellers, but stage belongs to theater. Yes, I can perform... <laughs> Of stage very well but that's not exactly the domain of storytelling a stage you have to defend that statement because so many people are going to have an opinion about it I'm sure <laughs> so support here your your proof which I think I agree with but um, continue along that line for a moment okay if I take a tremendously fine storyteller Yes, and I'm, I'm not mentioning names, as you've noticed, um, because each person has his own preferences. But um, I'll take a, fabulously, a fabulous storyteller, put him on stage, he'll do a fabulous work. But if you take the same person and put him inside the crowd, yes, not in, not in stage lights, yes, the quality of the work is different. There is no fourth wall, and although storytellers offstage say there's no fourth wall, you still feel it. There is an element of performance when you stand on stage. The audience expects a performance. But you went, when you sit with the people in this kind of community style, like on that certain day that I decided that I'm a good storyteller, that's a very different kind of work. And that's where storytellers are unbeatable. That, that's, that's our uh, mission. So that, that's my defense. Take a very good storyteller, put him on stage, and then put him in this community kind of uh, setting. And it's a totally different quality. Both are very good, but it's a very different quality. It's funny, you know, I, when I started this journey of doing this, this show, I, I didn't realize that. And I've, I've only recently come to see what you're talking about. And really the key idea, be, idea being here that, that storytellers really outclass all the other art forms in that particular environment. Um, I, I'm thinking of the fireside, really, you know, sitting around the fire sort of environments. When you do a storytelling performance with the people, yes, a storytelling event really, I call it, not a performance, what happens at the end is that people come up to you and hug you. That, that happens, when you get off stage, people come and shake your hand, or they bow, <laughs> or they do this kind of um, gesture that shows we honor you. You are a master. 
But when you sit with the people, they would come and cry on your shoulder. You would cry on their shoulder. Which is a very, as I said, it's, it brings out something different from people. Yes, so, and that, that's a place where story, sometimes I feel it is too, diff- too strong to be a storyteller at those moments. Because it's not only that I've touched their lives, they've, they're touching mine. People take decisions, life-changing decisions after listening to a storyteller. Sometimes I say to myself, I don't want to, to carry that art. It's too, it's a, such a great responsibility. But I see that to be our mission much more than performing on stage. But performing on stage is part of what you do nowadays. So they both have place and there are so many other formats. So these, even sitting down and thinking and discussing these issues is part of, of the storytelling community responsibility, uh, kicking off more and more, um, rocks, yes, off the road of becoming good storytellers. And most people don't want to deal with this. I, I, I know it from here, not only from, uh, the rest of the world, that when I start Speaking about that stuff, people, <laughs> they don't want to listen. They say, what, what do you have to do? You have so many performances. Yes, you're doing well. Leave us alone. That's what we want. For me, that's too little. And I suspect that I'm not the only one. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, I really, I've been thinking a lot about this the last couple of weeks. I feel like when I look at the problems of the world, what I see is a failure of communication and I see a failure of effective storytelling. Um, I see that in so many problems that exist in the world today. And so I, I think that this storytelling community, um, both international and here in the States domestically, we have that gift to offer the world. We have that, that power, if you would, to influence the way events happen because we have this great gift of of teaching empathy of of teaching connection of teaching relationship yeah well i i think the the greatest gift we have is the the ability to tell stories in a compelling way and that includes everything that you've said much more and sometimes we forget it, that our greatest power is the power of storytelling. Yes, we do have a great gift, <laughs> an amazing gift. And that, that begs the next question, which is, if there are many people who have attained mastery, what is the path of being a storytelling master, of having this gift? You know, how, how do we choose to use that energy? Um, if many people will become masterful storytellers, the, the word mastery, I think many people don't like it. And that's because it suggests, even if you look at, um, I look, before we had, before we started talking, I looked into some dictionaries and you'll find the words like command, control, yes, and people don't like these words. For a good reason, they, they have, to my opinion, have no relation to mastery in the arts. 
command and control, but that's an immediate association. If someone says, I'm a master, or this person is a master, so he's elevated. That's what people figure out. And being a master is not about being elevated. It's about something very, very different. Only when you meet the ability of a master, you feel elevated. That's what a master is supposed to do, to, to my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> yes, it makes the person attending this event feel elevated. The art is elevated. The entire potential of humanity is elevated, not the person who is performing. He's, he's performing a service for, for, for humanity. So if there will be many, many uh, good storytellers or masterful storytellers, so many people will be serving humanity in a lovely way. Now, when you live with a storyteller, <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's contagious. People around you uh, who are close, they learn to behave and speak in the same way, in the same kind of, of um, pace. Yes, and an observation and um, being patient about so many other, so many things that people are not patient today and non-cynical. Yes, there's no one definite answer about anything. And storytellers know that very well deep inside. The, the path of storytelling teaches you that. And it's all up to you. That's also something that you learn from stories and from storytelling. So if there will be many good storytellers, <laughs> and people like to say we can change the world, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, we can change ourselves, and maybe that can change the world. And I think that's the, the, that's the biggest gift that we can give, is being more and more very fine storytellers to behave as storytellers. And that, that has nothing, by the way, to do with the word perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say truthful. Truthful people. And so one day I was, after a conference in Boca Raton, several years ago, I was waiting for the cab to take me to the airport, and this lady was sitting next to me, and we started a conversation. We were all storytellers there. And suddenly she looked at me and said, it's so interesting to be in the presence of storytellers. It's they're such lovely people, and she herself is a storyteller. And, and she was right. Like Storytellers like being with storytellers. Not only because like, like, like. Storytellers are interesting people, and they have good energy. Even if sometimes in their own lives we have turbulence, we have difficult times, sometimes we feel really, really, really bad. And we, and we can be nasty, like any other person. But our, our core is, is pleasant, is clever, is wise. So if you have more of those people, and it's something that you can actually teach. <laughs> so, yes, it can change. It can change ourselves. Okay, my name is Michael Cotter, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. There is a place where a person in an art form or trade apprentices, and then there's a moment when they're 
a journeyman, if you will, a journeyman. And then there's a place where they're accepted into the trade as an equal. Um, there's a word for that, which I can't remember. And then there's a place where they become masters of the art. And I'm so aware of the fact that the storytelling art form has none of these things, <laughs> you know, worked out formally. Um, I chose to apprentice to a storyteller in New York City. That was like 1992. I'm, I'm always surprised at how few of us have gone through that process of submitting themselves to an elder for training. First of all, if you have the opportunity to sit at the feet of an elderly storyteller, do it as much as possible. Especially if they are very, very old. Because there is something about them that is immovable, unchangeable. They're just speaking the truth of the earth. And the more you can listen to them, just do it. Now about apprenticeship, um, we, we're just setting off uh, the Israeli Association for Storytellers, for the art of storytelling, actually. And one of the, the rules, I don't know how you call it in English, when you have this uh, agreement that everybody has to take upon themselves if they want to be members of the organization, is that when you enter the organization, you'll have to meet a members committee that will, after a conversation and, and speaking about what you've done until now, what kind of stories you tell, uh, not necessarily where you've studied, because there are so many possibilities, um, will define whether you are already uh, a full member, yes, or like an apprentice member. And you can become a full member in two years if you follow the rest of the regulations. If you're a stable member, you'll have to be a teacher to one of the, call it, uh, fellows of this organization, which is not yet a stable member, a full member. And if you're one of the fellows, you need to be an apprentice. And everybody has to participate, either be a teacher or an apprentice, and it's part of the basic agreement of this organization. If you want to, to join, you'll have to take this rule upon yourself. No other way. And this sits on the recognition of the importance of this kind of relationship. And the, 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 the connection between these two people lasts for a year at least, but a year is minimum. And it means that they accompany each other in performances and coach and ask for advice, yes, and invite into a thinking process. Whatever you do as storytellers, as part of it, you do together. So it's not only an opinion, it's already constituted into <laughs> the basic uh, core agreement of this organization. And that's how important we think it is. We got an email question for you from um, Natalie Gendel in Switzerland. 
Yeah. Um, she emailed a question, and her question was, uh, Dear Lamore, from your point of view, which elements combined together would make storytelling a creative and powerful narrative? Well, I think storytelling is a powerful narrative <laughs> in itself. Uh, and that's because humanity is a powerful narrative. And its ability to express itself in this format or medium or form of art or whatever is a powerful narrative. Um, I think it would be easier to answer when it's not, when is it not a powerful narrative? Um, I think under certain conditions, some of them would be when the storyteller just recites something, you know, without knowing the narrative of the stories he tells, but only the text itself. So then it's not, to my opinion, a powerful narrative. So when the storyteller is not totally aware of being part of a, an interactive event and does not allow what happens uh, beyond himself to get into him, yes, whether the people, their thoughts, their behaviors, their needs, what happens in the room, what happens outside of the room, what happened just before the event started, so then the narrative is rather dull. It's only about one person with a story. And it's not an event. When, when storytellers um, are too afraid and give in to dull taste and requests from the audience or from organizers, and or, or get stuck. They have several programs. They know that they work well. They sell well. And that's it. No more learning. No more striving. No more looking for deeper uh, experiences and knowledge. So the narrative of storytelling becomes dull. When storytellings, storytellers hear storytellers and just use their stories the number of stories told in the world diminishes. And again, the storytelling nar narrative becomes dull. Um, I think those are <laughs> good examples uh, for what makes storytelling, uh, what might make storytelling become a dull narrative. One of the things I think Natalie was trying to get at is what are the elements of good storytelling, real real simple because we're running out of time, but if you were to break storytelling in, okay. into its base elements, how would you break it down? Okay. The basic model, the core model, would be storyteller, story, listener. Yes. And it's an interactive triangle. All three elements um, are part of all three elements, and they influence each other. And it's a dynamic act. And if it's not dynamic... So something is a little bit uh, off off the track. It's not exactly storytelling as it as it should be in its fullest. The presence of all three in the same place. The presence of all three in the same place. There's so many forums of digital stuff, technology, social media. I've been writing about this, and I'll continue writing for about a year on my blog about these connections and and other forms of what people call storytelling. But I think that good storytelling requires the presence of all three, story, storytellers, and listener in the same place. Otherwise, they can't actually influence each other beat by beat. 
and the ability of the storyteller um, to gesture, yes, properly, and not only to imitate or to mimic, but to gesture from the the ground of the story, from from the inner motivation of the characters, to use uh, voice properly. I think that voice is the uniqueness of performance and storytelling. I think it's the, the most unique element about storytelling and what defines it as a, as, as, as a performing art or whatever we would call it. And uh, text words, the ability to use words, sense of story and everything which is connected to the world of words. If you can be good at all those, that's very good. <laughs> that's great storytelling. Well, we've we've burned through our hour, so I need to ask you, do you have an offer? Do you have a way that people can continue to connect with you? Well, through the blog, the more storytelling Agora, I'd be happy to continue talking to people. Um, I think that would be the easiest way. And if you want to have a conversation, live conversation, <laughs> which is always easier for storytellers, um, send me an email and we'll find each other. Do you travel overseas a lot to, to European um, storytelling festivals? or? I travel uh, abroad too little <laughs> because I'm too busy over here. But there is one event that I never miss, which is Beyond the Border Storytelling Festival in Wales. I'll be there this year too. Um, sometimes I come to the NSN conference every several years, every every few years, and I travel uh, also with no connection necessarily or direct connection to storytelling. But yes, I do travel. Uh, beyond the border is you, thy not miss for myself, <laughs> because it's a fabulous event. If we're talking about mastery. <laughs> I, I interviewed the organizer of that event, David Ambrose. David Ambrose. Yeah, he talks about the International Storytelling Festival of Wales. And I, I want to take a moment to just remind the listeners that I have on the website, artofstorytellingshow.com, if you put a slash after that and type in the word storytelling, there's a free e-course you can sign up for. It's a nine-part e-course. describes in detail how to be a storyteller. And it really breaks down a lot of the ideas that Lamore has already talked about breaks them down in some very simple ways. The e-course is called The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps, and it's very accessible. And, and I really believe that storytelling is an inherent biological aspect of human of the human race and that it is something that all of us have the ability to access to the best of our ability, meaning that not everybody can be a stage teller, but everyone has the ability on some level to use storytelling in their life. There's one more offer that is really important. It's probably the most important offer I've ever made on the show. And I've been dancing around this, and this is sort of the moment of truth here. If you are a storyteller and you've been listening to this conversation, you're probably frustrated with this conversation because Lamore has talked a lot about searching for mastery and the importance of exposure to storytellers. And I am sure you've had the experience, as many storytellers do, of not having a lot of exposure to storytellers who have developed a sense of mastery in their practice. Well, I have solved that problem. I have solved that problem by founding the International Storytelling School, which is at 
www.thestorytellingschool.com. There are three levels of membership. There's the audience level, and the audience level are basically people who are just giving me, me, $10, or the school, $10 a month to support the work of the school. And occasionally you might get something, but really it's about just supporting the podcast. And you're your ten dollars are going to support this work, this production, and the and the hosting, and the and the work of the school and the podcast. And you aren't necessarily getting something every month or even every couple months. Then you have uh, performers, and performers are people who are working directly with me to become better storytellers. And I am coaching them directly, and I'm working with them. The upper level is the apprentice level. Apprentice storytellers are working with the master storytellers who are listed on the site. And you pick the storyteller you want to work with, and you give them a story, and they give you feedback. And it actually costs a fair bit of change, but that's what it costs to access mastery. And the cool thing about the whole project, the cool, the really cool thing about the project is it's designed to run in your spare time. It's not like you have to set a time that works for both you and the teacher. It's that you use your 10 minutes when you have it to or you, you, you send your MP3 file when you have it so the teacher can listen to it. And then when they have some spare time, they listen to your story and they leave some commentary for you. And you listen to their commentary and you respond with questions and they, again, leave you more commentary. That's what you get for your membership each month. And each month you have the ability to tell a story and to get direct feedback from a storyteller who has achieved some level of mastery in the art form. If that interests you, if you are like many storytellers that I've met who have not attained mastery but are still working professionals, this is a great way of doing that, of working towards, of going further on that journey of challenging ourselves. Lamore, do you have any final words for the international storytelling community? Hmm, that's a difficult moment. Um, <laughs> uh, be brave, be bold. We're we're really in a in a great art, which requires bravery, and boldness sometimes, and big hearts. So that's what I wish everyone. I feel like we spent a really good time in this hour discussing and feeling, and challenging ourselves to raise ourselves up in our skills and abilities to find our path to mastery. And so I feel like this conversation leads me to call out to the people who are listening today that you should take this opportunity to recommit your your desire to find mastery. I have talked about the story before, but I had a friend of mine. Um, I worked at the Alternatives to Violence Project, and we went into prisons, and it's, it's still going strong uh, here in the States. But I went in, uh, I forget the number, I want to say 22 maximum security prisons in New York State. In going to all those prisons, the guy who ran the program became a friend of mine, um, and Jay used to tell me this story because people would call him up and they'd say, I want to help you run your program, Teaching Prisoners Nonviolence. And he'd say, well, I don't, I don't know if you're really... Um, committed to this and they, the people would say yeah i'm committed to this i'm really committed to helping you jay i want to help you i want to help you work in the prisons and jay would say well i don't know if you're committed i, I get the feeling you're just involved you're just interested and they say no no i'm committed he said, well let me tell you about commitment jay would tell the story he would say 
When you go to the local diner and you order a plate of bacon and eggs, you know that a chicken was involved in bringing you the, the, the you know that a chicken was involved in bringing you those eggs, but you know that the pig was committed to bring you that bacon. And that's what I'm talking about. If we as storytellers are going to have the impact on our lives, forget the rest of the world, as Lamar said, which I think is a good point, but I like to think about the rest of the world, but forget the rest of the world, just on our lives, we have to rededicate our commitment. We have to rededicate our commitment to the art form. And what that means to me is, if you're weak at voice work, you go to a voice teacher and you get lessons. If you're weak at at being on stage in terms of stage work, you volunteer at a local theater company and you get stage time as an actor just getting familiar and comfortable with being on stage. If if you're weak at physical the physical part of storytelling, being a character or doing this, you maybe do a workshop with a clown. I mean you you challenge yourself. You find the weakness and you make it your strength. And I think that's the that's the thought I'd like to leave us with. Lamora, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. Great show. <laughs> I love listening to your recordings. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. This guest has written a post to the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. Listening and the show's over. I mean, didn't you notice the ending music and now everything's finished? I mean, you're still listening. You must be really dedicated. I'm I'm very impressed. <laughs> I bet you're expecting some sort of, you know, special little um, clip left over um, and, you know, um, something I cut out of the show. And I, I had something, but I lost it and I kind of feel bad. So I. Because you listen to the end, I got something for you. Only you. Don't tell anybody else, all right? Here it is. 
I'm willing for the first three people who call me to let you take part in international storytelling school at the performer level for one month, for 30 days. It's, it's basically one story. Send me one story and I will support you in your storytelling. I will give you hopefully extremely beneficial and amazing feedback that allow you to develop as a storyteller in ways you've just never imagined before. Anyway, try it out. Let me know. If you're interested, send me an email at wolf at ericwolf.org and I'll give you full details. Or you can just read online on the website at thestorytellingschool.com. And if, if this is the first time you ever listen to the end of the show and you're like, what? There's stuff after the music? Yeah, there is. Sometimes I just put something in just for fun, you know. The the best one, the best one I've ever done is um, at the end of the interview with Jimmy Neal. If you have that on the radio and you haven't listened to it, go go to the end of that one. It's it's pretty pretty wild. All right, so you see it recording in front of you. Uh-huh. Oh, great. Okay. Um, Lamora, how do I? First of all, Lamora is correct, right? Yes. And how do I say your last name? Shiponi. Lamora Shiponi. That's right. Sorry about that. No, no, no. Sorry, I'm an equal opportunity misspeller and mispronouncer. Okay. Um. <laughs> I had to I had to MC at the Smithsonian this past summer with the African American Folklife Festival and it was just all the African Americans they all have these African names that are just impossible which was a blast. Um okay so um I'm going to start the intro and then I'll fill it out a little bit later with more details about you if that's all right. Um and if you don't hear part of the intro cuz Skype cuts out that's okay I'll just um, I'll just record it as if you heard the whole thing, and then I'll we'll go from there. 